Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 32. If you've been with us this summer, you know that we have been looking through the Psalms at various Psalms throughout the summer, recognizing that they speak to us in a unique way. All scripture is God-breathed and it is God speaking to us, uh, but as one scholar has noted, the Psalms not only speak to us, but they speak for us. They give us a language Uh, to express our own experiences, the the full range of our experiences. And so it's been a blessing to go through the Psalms uh, this summer, as we often do during the summertime. I believe this is the last Sunday we'll be in the Psalms. I don't know for sure. Next week we have a guest, is Matt Garrison, who will bring us the word. Matt, for those of you who don't know him, is actually uh, from here, Um, former area director for Young Life, who's now an Anglican minister in North Carolina. I have no idea what he will tell us. Um, I know it will be good, I know that it will be godly, and I know that it will certainly be entertaining. Um, And so whether it's from the Psalms or something else, we will find out. Uh, And then the following week, I'm going to do a message from Genesis 12 as we prepare for our fall series, where we begin a series in the book of Romans. So we'll be studying that through, uh, really for for the next couple of years, other than holiday breaks and, and next summer as well. Uh, But this morning we look at Psalm 32. For those of you who keep up in advance, and last week's bulletin uh, told you that it was going to be Psalm 86, uh, it's not. Um, I decided that last Sunday um, because uh, Camper preached kind of a bummer of a psalm. Not a bummer message, but a a bummer of a psalm. And I sat there thinking, then I'm going to do another bummer psalm next week. Let's let's do something a a little happier at the end anyway. So... And so we're still going to deal with our problems, uh, but we're going to have hope uh, from the text. Again, Scamper did bring us hope, but uh, it's a little more obvious in Psalm 32 than it is in Psalm 86. So that's the explanation. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord uh, now and ask him to speak to us, and we'll consider our text. Holy God, we do come to you with thanksgiving that you have gathered us on this day, that you have made this day for us to be rest from our labors and renewed as we are reminded that we are to rest in you and in your grace. And in in this way, we experience the flourishing we desire, that we need, and that you have ordained. We worship you by praising you, but we also worship by listening. So Lord, may we hear your voice speaking through David as he writes this psalm, and even as I share its meanings. Bless us that we may see Jesus, and in him we may know you. We pray this in Christ and for his glory. Amen. Psalm 32. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, And in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me, 
You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of our God. According to scholars, that this psalm, Psalm 32, was the favorite psalm of none other than Augustine or Saint Augustine. In fact, he had the words of this psalm stenciled on the wall next to his deathbed so that he would be able to meditate upon the message in his last days here and in preparation for seeing the Lord. And as I read through this, and I've read through this a number of times this week, it's understandable that that would be his favorite. I'm not saying this is a better psalm or it should be your favorite as opposed to any other psalm, but it's understandable why it would be someone's favorite, even someone who is is deep a thinker and as profound an understanding of the ways of God as Augustine was. I mean, consider the way this psalm begins. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It is a psalm about blessing. It is a description and an instruction in living a blessed life. And who wouldn't want that? Especially when you consider the alternatives. You can live a blessed life or you can live an unblessed life. I'll take the blessed life. Or actually, you can have a blessed life or a cursed life. I definitely can do better to do without that. And so the idea that this is God speaking to us through David, and in, at a point in here, God speaking as well, interjecting in his instruction for us, it is a reason for us to take this seriously, to appreciate it, and even to become a, a favorite song. Psalm 32 is one of two psalms. It's actually the second uh, uh, psalm that begins this way, that blessed is. And these are Old Testament beatitudes, you know, as in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is, blessed is. And, And those who are Bible students know them as the beatitudes. These two psalms are beatitudes. The first one is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked. And here in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Uh, The two are are very related, but one of the things that struck me this week is that Psalm 32 is foundational because they both have similar messages, but there is a different message. And actually, I think Psalm 32 provides more hope. If you look at Psalm 32 through Psalm 1, and thinking that the whole of the Christian life is only to live perfectly, avoiding all wickedness. And then you look at this one and say, well, if the hope is for, if the blessing comes for the one who just walks with the Lord, then what about those of us who fail to walk with the Lord? On the other hand, when you look at Psalm 32 as the foundation, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, against whom the Lord counts no transgressions. 
recognizing the foundational blessing is in the grace of God, and then the grace of God that not only forgives, but then empowers us, we are then able to live a life walking in the ways of the Lord and not in the ways of the wicked, because one of the ways of the Lord is to recognize our need of God's grace. And Psalm 32 is speaking very powerfully uh, about that. It is foundational. And at the same time, the blessed life, according to Psalm 32, is also conditional. Now, I know those of you who are really, really, really reformed are getting uptight right now because we keep talking about unconditional grace, unconditional grace. And here I'm reading a psalm and telling you that the blessed life, the life that is grace, is conditional. Well, it is. In fact, it's conditioned upon recognizing our condition. At least that's what the psalmist says. Going back to Augustine, one of the wisdoms that he recognized, don't know whether it was on his deathbed or at some other point in his life, he said the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. In other words, we are wise when we recognize the reality of our condition. It certainly answers a lot of the questions that we have about ourselves. Why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? Why do I have this list of great things I want to do and I don't do them? And the answer to that is because... Every one of us who is born into this world is born with this condition that is called sin. It is our condition. And Augustine says the beginning of knowledge is to recognize that because recognizing that is the first step toward remedying that. And the psalmist here is saying blessed is the one who essentially recognizes that condition. The blessed life comes in knowing that you're a sinner. Blessed is the one who's forgiven. I mean, think about what he could have said. He could have said, blessed is the one who has no need to be forgiven. In which case, almost, well, every one of us would be disqualified. Because at some point in time, and the reality is probably at all points in time, every one of us has need to be forgiven. We have need to be forgiven of one another, and we certainly have need to be forgiven of God. If the psalm says, here's the good news, blessed are you who have no problems and have no need to be forgiven, well, then we would all be without any hope in this world. Things wouldn't get any better. And so the psalm says the blessed life comes to the one who recognizes that they are a sinner but is forgiven of their sin. Now, for many of you here, this is not new news. This is old news. You recognize this. This is your hope. This is the foundation of, or part of your understanding. And so you recognize the need for grace. You experience God's grace. You're here this morning to be renewed in God's grace. And so for you, this is a refresher, hopefully an encouragement. But for others of you who are here, this is news. This is new. But the idea that the blessed life is for the one who is forgiven, not for the one who is perfect. You are aware and maybe even feel conviction in the weight of your sin. But you're not really sure what to do with it. And the idea that being aware and feeling the conviction of your sin is the step towards blessing just never would have occurred to you. There's still others who are here that may or may not be aware of your sin and you frankly couldn't care less. And I suspect that there are many of us who are here who have heard this before and we know this to be true and yet we don't functionally believe it. 
A noted counselor, Henry Cloud, has said this. The sad thing is that many of us come to Christ because we know we're sinners and then spend the rest of our lives trying to pretend that we're not. And this speaks to every one of us who feels the temptation to constantly measure up, to put on the good face, to make sure the people around us think that we have our act together. Because how else would you describe that than somebody who knows that you're a sinner and yet you're trying to pretend that you're not? Psalmist is addressing us. And he is giving us good news. And one of the things that I want us all to take away today is to recognize that wherever you are on that spectrum of, look, this is old news for you, this is new, old news, but you don't functionally believe it, you really didn't know it before, or frankly, you couldn't care less, God is able to meet you wherever you are. He's able to speak with you, and I pray that he'll be speaking to you this morning through Psalm 32. And it's important that he does speak to you. And it's important, as Augustine recognized, that we do understand our condition. The psalmist kind of expresses the ugliness and the effect that sin was having on his life. And it's important that we recognize the psalmist is David, a man after God's own heart, and yet who himself recognizes the reality of sin in his own life. If you look in, in the passage in verses 3 and 4, he describes the effect of the sin in his life. And I, I find particularly interesting, as he uses an illustration at the end of verse 4, for, in verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Because he recognized there was sin within him, sin that for however long that he had not taken to God, had not confessed to God but that was harboring and having an effect on him. He said that it was eroding his strength, his energy, his being. And he uses the analogy that many of us can uh, certainly recognize. And he says it's like being out in the heat during the summer. And you're out there and you're going along, and, but you don't notice until you essentially crash that the heat has been taking away all of your strength. As I read that this week, I was reminded especially this time of year, back more years than I'm going to admit, but my senior year in high school. It was the second or third day of practice, first day in full pads, and we were practicing, and, um, and then there came a point, uh, not at the end of practice, but probably three-quarters of the way through, uh, we were running drills. I was doing passing drills, throwing, throwing the ball to our receivers, and then all of a sudden I was just kind of Things got really fuzzy. There was something not clicking, not right. Things, all the people were kind of fuzzy. All the receivers were fuzzy. I continued to go through the drills. And then I reached down to pick up one of the balls so to be able to throw to the next receiver. And I just fell completely down. Later on that night, I was taken to Vanderbilt Hospital where I was diagnosed with heat exhaustion. I lost 12 pounds in one day, which would be nice again, but not that way. Um, and... Um, <laughs> But um, I won't describe it, but it was not pretty. Um, because I'd been out in the heat of the day doing something I love, doing something I enjoy, doing something I, I did well, and yet the heat was sapping my strength. And I am old enough to know to, to be that they didn't keep you from having water, but it wasn't encouraged. Uh, and so out in the heat of the day in the Nashville sun, in the early August, 
And I'd actually ridden my bike to uh, practice that morning, which was about three miles from my house. There was just no energy. And you've experienced that as well, perhaps when you're out working in the garden or out in the fields in the summertime, you just know how the sun can set. The psalmist here is saying that's what sin does to us as well. At first, you don't notice it. You're going on. But you notice it when it brings you to a point of collapse. And he describes even before that in verses 3 and 4 the effects and the extent of the effects of sin. When he, he says this, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. And I notice what he's saying. The groaning all day long is the expression of the emotional anguish. And it is an enduring all day long. Sin doesn't just go away. The effect of sin doesn't go away. And when he says, my bones were wasting away, he's pointing to something that we don't think about, but our harboring of our sin not only does damage to us spiritually, but there is a physical effect that it has on us as well. And this is what the psalmist was experiencing. And he's acknowledging in retrospect now, he's talking about a point in his life when he had not acknowledged his sin, but he's describing for us the reasons that we are wise to know the reality and admit and uh, our, our own condition. Because the blessed life, blessed is the one who is forgiven of that confession. But the blessed life is not only conditioned upon our awareness of our condition, but the blessed life comes when we come clean through confession. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing, particularly here in the first part of this psalm. In verse 5, most explicitly, when he says this, I acknowledge my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, he's experiencing the blessing, the freedom, the relief that came from confessing the reality of his condition, not by trying to be better, not by trying to ignore it. But notice the immediacy here, because this is very important for some of you, for all of us, but some particularly at what point was he forgiven? I confessed and you, boom. You see, God's grace comes to us by faith. Forgiveness comes through confession. It is not the first step in a process of being forgiven. As if we recognize the problem, then we work our way to a point in which we are now worthy of being forgiven, and then maybe God will forgive us or according to his promise, he will forgive us. It is instantaneous. It is grace that is given, not because we earned it, not because we merit it, or because we are worthy. It's because it's rooted in the character of God and his promises himself. And this is vitally important because many of us function with a wrong mindset. That we believe that God's forgiveness and God's grace comes to us, not through repentance, but through penance. In fact, many of us have a difficult time even recognizing the distinction between them. Penance is when we work thinking that we've done enough to earn God's forgiveness. But all the time we are working, we are living with the weight of feeling unforgiven. 
Most of you have probably not seen it, but a, a wonderful movie that came out in the, the middle 80s was called The Mission, starring Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. The gist of it was about the slave trade that was taking place in Portugal where mercenaries were being sent to South America where they were capturing natives and then bringing them back and selling the natives into slavery. Robert De Niro was one of those mercenaries, in fact, one of the more prominent mercenaries, who went into the jungles of South America in order to capture potential slaves. Jeremy Irons is a missionary priest who is working among the people who were in danger of being enslaved. There's a point in the movie when Robert De Niro gets angry, kills his brother, goes to jail, and then is purchased out of his jail by Jeremy Irons and the mission in which they are working. And they take him back to South America among the people that he had previously worked to enslave and made him an apprentice of sorts in order for him to pay off the debt that he had, not only to those people, but to God. And there's a very poignant scene in that movie in which, as the intern, the lowest on the totem pole, he was doing all of the grunt work, including carrying all the supplies for the mission. And to get to the mission from the boat, you had to scale a mountaintop. And so you have this scene in where first the, the, the priests had, and missionaries had climbed up, and then Robert De Niro was climbing up the side of the mountain on the rope with the weight of the, um, all the supplies of the missionaries on his shoulders. Just prior to that scene, there was a scene around a campfire when Robert De Niro was not present, where most of the subordinate missionaries, speaking to Jeremy Irons, said that they think that he's done enough. And Jeremy Irons' response at that point is to say, but he doesn't think he's done enough, and until he does, I don't think so either. In other words, he hasn't worked off his debt yet. But while the missionaries are on top of the mountain, and De Niro is climbing up, carrying the weight of all of the supplies for the missionaries, he gets about three quarters up, and something happens. The rope snaps. He clings on for a life before he's able to, and yet in trying to position himself to save his own life, all of the supplies fall back to the ground, back to the beach. He climbs down and tries to do it again, but he's not able to. And then ultimately he's found on the beach just broken and weeping because he's not able to do the work that is necessary to earn the forgiveness of his sin. Now, in the movie, that's at what point Jeremy Irons says, okay, you've now done enough. The problem with that, the whole theory is, well, who's to say it's enough? And how do we ever repay our sin? But more important to us is in this picture, more pertinent that I want to present that to you is, it's a picture of the way many of us live. We think that we're going to pay it back. Not only is that kind of frustrating, we can't pay it back, and God's promise is that it's not about paying back. See, the psalmist doesn't say, look, I, I did a bunch of good things, and so you forgave me. The psalmist says, I confessed. I confessed my condition. I confessed what I've done, and you forgave me. It is about God's grace, which comes immediately. It doesn't leave you where you are. There is a transformation, and we see that here, 
those of you who are feeling the weight of your failure and your sin need to hear what is being said here by David. When I confessed, you forgave me. And this is not a cheap grace. And we recognize that not only by the language that David is using in his point of confession, but even in the celebration of verses 1 and 2. Look at the words that he's using there. This is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The idea of forgiven means that the weight is lifted or the debt is swallowed. That's grace. But even more pertinent are the other words there, or, 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 or maybe I want to highlight more. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does, does not count. Counts no iniquity. Covered. Counts. Forgiven. These, this is a language of redemption. And particularly covered and account are, are words that remind us of the weight of the gospel. So there's a sense in which blessed is the one whose, whose sins are covered. It's kind of like someone, you know, you... Somebody says, I got you covered. You don't have the whatever it is to pay. I, I got you covered. But it's also pointing even more to being covered by the blood of the Lamb. It's not about our worthiness, but it's about the fact that we are marked by, we are covered by the blood of Christ that comes by faith in Christ. And when we are covered, marked by that, our sins are covered. And our sins are not counted against us because they have been accounted to Jesus. It's known as the great exchange. When we come to faith, something bizarre and beautiful happens. The, the marvelous mystery that we sang of earlier. Our record, our sin gets placed on Jesus and he was nailed to the cross to punish our sin. And at the same time, his record of perfection and holiness is counted as ours. It's not the real experience, but as a mystical accounting that we are declared righteous while he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Our records are exchanged. And so therefore, blessed is the one whom the Lord does not count any iniquity. And the reason he doesn't do that is because all of your iniquity was placed on Jesus. And if you have trusted in him, the Lord counts no iniquity to you. Now, that doesn't mean that we change our condition. We still struggle with the reality of sin. But your legal standing, my legal standing, the legal standing of anyone who is trusting in Jesus Christ is you are blessed by the grace of God. And it is yours by confession. It is yours for the first time when you confess, recognizing and believe for the first time. It is yours to experience when even as a believer walking with Jesus that you unload the burden of your failure, confessing that to him, and you are renewed in the gift that was purchased by Christ once for all. not about you, it's not about me, it's about God, it's about grace, and we are the beneficiaries. And David stands amazed at that, and then he begins and gives us applications. I got a lot of passage that I don't have to think through, what are going to be the application, how am I going to apply this? You know, it gives it to me in the text. And so here's what David says, for all of us who recognize that the blessed life is conditioned upon recognizing our condition, and it is experienced through our confessing 
and acknowledging and repenting of our condition. David says, beginning in verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly, in other words, everyone who believes in God, everyone who is trusting in God, everyone who wants to walk with God, offer prayer to you at a time when you can be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And so the imagery here is, you know, a storm has come, the waters are getting really great, perhaps you're by a dam. And so through confession, the dam is open and the water pressure begins to level out and you will not be overcome by it. And he says that comes when we seek God. And so for the first application is to seek God. Pray, talk to God, pray, confess to God, pray, seek God's face, pray, be in his presence. That's a reminder. It's a response to God's grace. It is also the way in which we have the strength to say no to the sin that enslaves us. We see the next application is interesting because in the way that this reads, as David has been speaking, up until verse 8. Verses 8 to 9, God jumps in, and now the voice of God, without being mediated through David, says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like the horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it won't stay near you. And God is adding to the applications here. David's saying, first seek God. And God says, okay, you seek me, and here's what I'm telling you. Heartfelt obedience. Don't make me put a leash on you. You don't need a leash. I'm not going to put a leash on you. But rather recognize the way that I have laid out for you to walk. And here's where Psalm 1 comes in. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. walk with God and in his ways because you recognize that he loves you not because you fear that he's going to bring punishment to you he said look it's not about mature faith comes when we don't operate out of fear of punishment but out of love for one who has loved us more than we can possibly imagine I just couldn't help this week but thinking about the words from Jack Miller years ago sometimes it's attributed to Tim Keller Tim stole it from Jack when he says and you've heard it often here Cheer up. You're all worse than you, what, you, what you think. But rejoice, you are loved more than you would dare dream. And then we see the third application here because of that reality in verse 11. Be glad. Believe what God says. Believe the promise that his promise and his grace is greater than your sin. And when you consider what he's done, rejoice. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Oh, you righteous, which is a declaration that you've been declared righteous, not because you've earned it, but because you have believed. And that's what God declares all of the righteous. And then shout for joy, all you are upright in heart. I'm going to finish with this. This psalm is giving us the dance steps of redemption. I know in some traditions, Christian traditions, the idea is real Christians don't dance. Well, I'm going to tell you, not only do real Christians dance, God has given us the steps here. The problem is that many of us think that the dance step is a two-step. Okay, recognize your sin and then stop it. But what God shows us here is three steps. It's a waltz. I'm indebted to a pastor from Birmingham, Alabama, Bob Flayhart, who says this, the gospel-centered life is a Christian waltz. 
A waltz is a dance made up of three steps. Christians need to consider the Christian three-step when it comes to growth. The first step, we acknowledge our need, which is recognizing our condition, and see our sin in light of the law. In the second step, we look to Christ to change us. There's the confession and recognizing he will come. In the third step, we fight against sin. We fight to choose righteousness in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Repent, believe, live. Repent, believe, live. Those are the three steps. Repent, believe, live, and repeat the steps. And you are doing the Christian wants. And David, as he outlines this, he says, look, this is the dance of celebration for the Christian. I guess you could do a jig, but I don't know how that works. But that's... Um, and so we'll stick with Flayhart's ideas. And so embedded in your mind, recognize that in your rejoicing in the grace of God that comes not because of your worthiness, but because of his own grace, don't be afraid to recognize your condition, to confess that to him, and then experience his grace that is lifting from you the weight of the guilt of your sin. And rejoice. Because we have much reason to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For you have blessed us in Christ in ways that we cannot fathom. But as we come to you this day to honor you and thank you, we do so not only because of the provisions which we